Hey, everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for February 18th, 2021. I'm here with George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. Hello. Filmmaker Michelle De La Tour. I'm back. I'm stoked. Hi, everybody. Yay. And filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hi. Also excited. And this week, we're going to be talking about Gina Carano parting ways with Disney. We're going to be talking about the Oscar short films shortlist. We're going to be talking about, in tech news, the... Um, Amazing release from Frame.io. All that and some deep cuts on romantic movies if you didn't get your fill over Valentine's Weekend this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So our top story this week, Gina Carano got herself fired from Disney's The Mandalorian by posting a bunch of batshit stuff on the internet and people had opinions about it. Is that a fair summary? People who know the story better than I do. I just saw the batshit stuff she posted and I was like, yeah, that's fair to fire someone over that. It's also ridiculous because someone on my social media feed was like, Gina Carano really introduces the idea that every, you know, really introduces the idea that everyone should be worried about being fired all the time. And I was like, haven't you been worried about being fired all the time? I've always been worried about being fired all the time my entire adult life. Like, I've always had these short-term freelance contracts. I was always aware if I posted, like, crazy stuff on the internet, I could be fired for it. Like, isn't everyone aware of that? So on the Monday after it happened, we're a week removed as we record this from, I think, the news kind of coming through that Disney was parting ways. They referred to her comments as abhorrent. One of our writers, Jason Hellerman, said to me, as often happens in the virtual newsroom, hey, this happened. Should we write about it? And my answer was no, because I thought, I don't know, like, so she got fired for saying something not smart. There's not much there besides for like a news release. Like I, we have a lot of stuff to cover at No Film School. I just thought, I don't see like, you know, and, and, and this was a mistake because over the course of the week, the topic blew up. Everybody was putting out their think pieces and writing about it and the story developed and, you know, people were clicking on it and Facebooking it and stuff. And I bring that backstory because by Friday, I thought, okay. This has become a conversation in the community and something needs to be said. But now it's not just a news story. It's like a thing. And I also saw a think piece about why she was being blacklisted. And it was a conservative. There was a conservative blacklist being created in Hollywood for people who held opinions like this. And so I got a little fired up myself. And so I thought, well, I can write an opinion piece about this, which I don't often do. Am I basically my point was she wasn't blacklisted. That's absurd. She was fired because she's bad for business because Disney has to put a lot into Star Wars and Lucasfilm. It's a really expensive asset. And having somebody who consistently says things that are inflammatory or controversial or crazy or strange is just like having in my article, I put it in a metaphor, was like, if you're running a clothes store, if you manage a Banana Republic and one of the clothing salespeople who's up front constantly brings up Nazis killing Jews with the customers, you're going to have to say like, hey, this is weird. You're distracting people from buying clothes. <laughs> like we can't sell clothes if you do this. People don't want to be in the store. It's weird. And that's to me what it is. Uh, Disney doesn't have a political agenda. They're not liberal. Hollywood is not liberal. Hollywood employs a lot of liberal people, but it also continues to employ conservative people. Maybe less, but it doesn't have an agenda. That whole thing to me is incorrect. 
It's just that it's not good for business. And she's not worth being in business with if she continues to make these strange choices, like posting this stuff, whether you agree with it or not. Because look, nobody gets fired from a show for saying that they think there should be tax reform or that there should be more states' rights or that any of these things that are actually conservative viewpoints, which I, again, mention all of this in the opinion piece. Like, you don't get fired for that stuff. You get fired for saying strange things about Nazis killing Jews that makes people uncomfortable because that's not going to help the bottom line. And like, you know, it's crazy how much Mel Gibson, for example, can do and continue to be employed. But that's also because Mel Gibson can still actually put some butts in the seats I mean, or virtual whatever streamers. I mean, she's just again, like I cited how the story was resurfaced that when Soderbergh had to redub her completely in Haywire. Because she wasn't great. <laughs> so I think another side of this is like Disney let her do a lot. There was a lot of weird stuff she was posting that they were like, okay, whatever. Like, you know, she's still on the show. Blah, blah. It finally crossed the line. And to me, like, I, I don't read the Facebook comments on what we put on No Film School because it becomes too much of a, there's too much of a cesspool sometimes. But I do read what people post on the website. And this post has tons of really angry posts directed at me, as well as some people who agreed with me. I kind of knew that was coming um, when I put it out there. But what I don't think anybody is just acknowledging in that, that gets really worked up about this sort of thing is that it's not that you're not allowed to hold these views. It's not that you're not allowed to say these things. It's that if you do, the people you are in business with may make decisions they may have consequences. You can, She can still go on Twitter and say whatever she wants. She is now working with the Daily Wire to create some kind of niche conservative content, or I don't even know if you call it conservative, whatever it is that they want to do, because she still has a platform if she wants it. It's just going to be a lot smaller and more niche because Disney is for everyone, and Disney just doesn't want this type of stuff coming from the people who are the face of their franchise. And that's their choice, which ultimately, end of my rant, but that's what conservatives want, right? They want a business to be able to make its own decisions based on its needs as a business. So I think that it's a weird, confused thing to say that this has anything to do with HUAC or blacklisting or government intervention and and freedom of speech. It has nothing to do with that stuff. This is not about freedom of speech. I think it's a really good point that you're bringing up, George, because so often the refrain that we've been hearing from conservatives is like, oh, there's this mass conspiracy on the left to silence everyone or to cancel everyone or to take over the media and propagate their point of view. When in fact, like you just pointed out, it's really the audiences are the ones that have the power here. The people decide what it is that they want to see and don't want to see. And there's a there's sort of a majority viewpoint that I think Disney, um, you know, needs to uh, speak to in their programming. And Gina, Gina's views don't fit in with that, you know. To me, it, you make but, a great point that yeah. you're reminding me of something else. I said I was done, but I, <laughs> you're reminding me of something else I wanted to bring up, which is that liberal perspectives actually do kind of sell right now. So whether you agree with them again or not, a lot of corporate 
groups are looking to progressive messaging because it sells. Because if you watched the Super Bowl, which actually I didn't, but I know what the commercials were because I work in media, but <laughs> but there were a lot of really progressive angles, not because all these companies have political agenda, but because they know what's selling products. And that's why Disney, again, has to think about it from the perspective of what's going to hurt or help the bottom line more. And I'm not saying I don't have politics and agendas. I do. I'm just saying that Disney is not removing her simply because it has a perspective that clashes with hers. It's it's about money. Also, like we don't actually have truly left wing celebrities in America. We have like sort of centrist liberal celebrities that are like, we should all get along and everybody should be accepted. But like, I can't remember the last time I saw a celebrity tweet, like we should nationalize Amazon's trucking infrastructure. You know, there is no communist left wing of prominent people out there saying, actually, it is time to take back means of production and put it in the hands of workers. Like we don't have a radical (laughs) left in America in any way, shape or form. Like Bernie Sanders, who is a European centrist, who is treated like a, a radical Marxist in this country. So like, of course, the only people getting censored are radical right-wingers because the only people we have that are truly radical at the moment and and trying to make change, it's bad change, I disagree with it, but like interested in changing the status quo are on the right wing. And the status quo protects itself. Disney is interested in preserving the status quo and always will be. And I suspect if we had some people as far out to the left in America as we do far out to the right, they would end up getting censored is my guess. That's what I'm assuming. If there was like Actually, a celebrity saying, let's take all the rich people's money and, and kill them all. Quick personal anecdote. I have an uncle who is an actor and he's been acting. He's been an actor for longer than I've been alive. And he was on a series that was one of these like CIA series in the nineties, maybe in the aughts, it might've been the aughts. And he had a supporting role and his politics, he's super, super far left. He's not a celebrity, but his politics got him off the show because he was so outspoken against things that were like the show was like, we just can't like, like, we can't have you on this show if you're going around talking about things like eat the rich. Like you said, I mean, I don't remember what he was even saying, but he's just so out there. They were like, this isn't going to work. We're trying to sell product. (laughs) That's what happens. Like it was not because of his life. It was just like, it wasn't going to work for what they wanted to do. He was not a good salesperson for their product. Well, to to me, the most interesting part of this story is the fact that she's now going to be ostensibly making a film with the Daily Wire, which is, you know, I had never even heard of the Daily Wire until I read this, but uh, it's surprising to me that there are conservative sites out there that have the means to fund a project of that scale. And I'm just, you know, I'm always really interested in like how these echo chambers that we've fallen into in our nation have just grown increasingly more divided, you know, separated from each other and what kind of media we're going to start seeing in the future. I mean, it's a little bit scary and dystopian, but it's like, wow, yeah, no, she wasn't canceled. She is identifying with a certain group and she's aligning with this group and she's now going to be making media with them. They have an audience you know, that's, I don't think that's a great thing. But, but there's always been a weird right-wing, grifty media thing. Like, all of those Ayn Rand movies that were made in Colorado <laughs> for, like, a million dollars each. Like, you know, there's always been an attempt to create a wholesome right-wing whatever media landscape. And it'll be interesting to see 
what happens with Daily Wire and Gina Carano, but I also felt like that announcement was as much as anything like an attempt to like handle the PR message and be like, oh, well, you won't make movies with me. I'll go make movies with them. But like, who knows if we will ever actually see a movie from that. We won't. That's what I was going to wonder <laughs> is will we ever see it ever? What I'm, I'm curious, like what percentage of Mandalorian viewers I assume it's a pr- fairly high percentage of Mandalorian viewers that are aware of this story. And I am curious, like, how they are going to, quote unquote, write her off or change her character and what that means for folks who are watching that had no idea that the story existed. <laughs> and they just assume, like, the char- does the character just disappear into a galaxy far, far away? You know, I'm very curious. I remember, like, years and years ago, and this is not, this, this didn't play out in the same way, but it was one of the first times I remember seeing offset behavior kind of changing storylines and having to shift onset, you know, like storylines. And I remember years, years, years ago, um, early Grey's Anatomy seasons where they had to fire people and like rewrite their entire storylines. And as a viewer, not well-versed in the offset kind of landscape, it's like, what's happening? Like, why did they just fire? You know, why did this character just disappear? That doesn't seem right for the story. And I'm curious what they're going to do. Like, I'm just curious, like, do they just, kill her off you know like i don't know what do they're you doing. watch the show yes I, you guys yeah you, so my thought was i'm actually surprised it took them this long to do it because she's been up to this for a while and i they've know been they very gave patient. her like a second chance and then they gave her many chances <laughs> which is the other reason why I don't, again i don't think it's about politics because they're like i mean it is about politics but it's not about they wanted to let it go um until it crossed the line but i was gonna say she's not really a regular she kind of comes in and out and i don't really think they need her because i don't think she brings much to the table and i think that they could easily just have her not be back for a while and or ever and just be like yeah we haven't heard from that character in a long time like who, like there's the joke do you guys remember the simpsons episode the Poochie stuff and then Poochie disappears and dies and they throw in this weird cell where it's like Poochie was destroyed on the way back to his home planet. And that meme's been traveling the internet about Gina Carano's character. But I just think they could easily never bring it up again and, and it wouldn't matter. I also feel like if there's anybody who has the CGI power to give her one scene that's a death scene, I'm sure they have likeness <laughs> rights in the contract. You know, it's Disney. They can do CGI whenever they yes. want. I'm I'm sure they have likeness rights. So, you know, if they need to give her one death scene where she valiantly dies trying to post a right-wing meme on whatever the Mandalorian version, yeah, protect the baby (laughs) or whatever. Um, You know, and there's nothing quite like, I remember on Lost, uh, a friend of mine uh, worked on the set and told me that you could always tell how much the writers hated an actor by how, like, ridiculous their abrupt death scene was. And, uh, like, I don't know if that gossip is true. Maybe all of the actors are wonderful people. I'm, I've, I've not met any of them in person. But, like, you know, Lost and many shows are famous for, like, oh, this character is really involved in the plot. And then, like, bam, gone. And sometimes it's because they're miserable. Sometimes it's because of a contract thing that didn't come through. I feel like it's part of tell. I mean, hell, Godfather 2, Clemenza didn't come back because his agent asked for too much money. And so they rewrote Clemenza to be, oh, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember the name of his character in Godfather 2, but that was supposed to be Clemenza, goddammit. So, you know, it's it's part of movies, I think. Make it Hollywood, baby. 
Well, why don't we move on? Because I feel like Kurano has gotten enough attention from the world in the last week to something that hasn't gotten very much attention in the world last week, but that I think filmmakers are probably very curious about, which is the Oscars have announced their short lists of shorts in the live action short category. Also in the short documentary category, like, you know, they have nine of these uh, sort of lists short lists that are up right now i can i can read them all songs um i'm not it's on there yeah original song animated short film and what you know what's interesting about these short lists for people outside the film industry is that you know like we we there's sort of an informal sense of what's in competition like you know you could ask most people in america like what do you think is in running for best picture and most people would have an opinion because like there's sort of a sense based on advertising and marketing. Like we all sort of have a gut knowledge of like, Oh, I think these are what people like is in competition. There's so many short films and there's so many original songs and, and so many animated short films that we don't really have a sense of like, well, what is in the running? And so, um, you know, they've listed the, the 10 films that are in the running and five of them will be nominees. What's really interesting is 191 films qualified in the category, which actually seems relatively low to me. You know, on an average year, Sundance probably gets three to 4,000 applications. Obviously, not all of those are really like qualifying. Sundance, uh, the Academy, you have to screen at an Academy qualifying festival in order to be considered to make the 191. I would have assumed more than 191 shorts showed at the qualifying festivals. You have to it's win an award. You have to win an award at a qualifying at festival. At one of those. That's right. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Either that yes. or then there's another way that you can sense. get on the list. Yeah. The other way you can get on the list is if you get a theatrical release for your short film, which like, yes. I have no idea how you do. But so essentially well, the main you pay path for it. people... Ah... Yeah, you book a theater and you say, all right, I'm going to show my short film at this theater. There's a theater in L.A. where a lot of films show in December just to qualify and then they don't open till like that next February or March. I forget the theater. I did a screening there once. It's a really nice theater. And so, yeah, I mean, you you just you do whatever you have to do. You know, if you want your short, if you have all the money you want and you want your short to get nominated for an Oscar or at least be in the running, you you book a you four wall a theater that qualifies as public screenings to get your theatrical release for your short. Was that still a requirement this year? Like have, has any of the, mm. I know that the eligibility and things have shifted for, for obvious reasons, but has any of the, has any of it shifted for the shorts? Like, did you still have to have a theatrical run even in the age of COVID? There's some uh, guidelines about like COVID related guidelines on their website about like, Oh, if you were intended for a theatrical release, but couldn't do that. And, you know, you were made available through streaming or whatever, you could possibly qualify. But I think really the biggest way that people end up making this shortlist or, you know, qualifying is through winning an award at an Academy Award qualifying festival, which there are, um, you know, a few dozen of those in the world. But it's tough. That's the tough first step for sure. The production company that I founded and ran for a long time, Dirty Robber, produced a short film that it got nominated for an Oscar, so I know a little bit about this, though I wasn't super involved in the Oscars campaign, but I have a few other friends who had their shorts nominated for Oscars. I, I know one guy who won. He's the only guy I know who's such a jerk that you'll have meetings with random people who find out you know him, and they'll say, oh my God, he's such an asshole, which is like a very <laughs> risky move to, because like, he could be my best friend. Who? What did this person know? But like, 
anyway, so that's all I'm going to say about that guy. But um, <laughs> usually, once you are in the qualifying, if you are serious, you usually hire a publicist. And the reason why is, you know, the Academy Awards are voted on by the, the Academy, but the Academy notoriously does not always watch everything. You know, you can go on New York Times and LA Times and there's lots of like anonymous interviews with the Academy where they talk about like, oh, well, you know, there were, you know, 80 features and I didn't have time to watch them all. So I didn't vote for this one because I heard it was bad and I voted for this one because I actually decided to watch it. And like, you know, it's not nearly as, you know. Everyone I know who's a festival screener watches everything that they are supposed to watch. Every single year, if you're a festival screener at Sundance and you get assigned 70 shorts, you watch all 70 shorts. I, all the festival screeners I, I know take it so seriously. For whatever reason, Academy members, at least according to these anonymous interviews, are somewhat uneven. And some of them watch everything religiously, and some of them watch the things that they've heard are good. And so publicity becomes a big part of actually getting your short film watched because if there's 191 shorts, I would say I'm just, I, I don't know percentages, but some percentage of the people who can vote watch them all, but I'm going to bet that's a very small percentage. So the job of the publicists is to have access to the Academy, to know who they are, which is like very easy to research that and to somehow reach them with messaging that makes them think if they're going to watch 20 shorts to vote on them, yours should be one of the 20 they vote on. And so I would guess, I mean, we should reach out to all of the filmmakers. I would guess of these 10, they all spent the money to hire a good publicist is my assumption. Absolutely. The other thing that's worth mentioning is that the short film shortlist, live action, animated and documentary are all evaluated by members of the Academy in the short films and feature animation branch, which means that all of those people are watching not only the, actually it's 174 films that were nominated for the live action category, but also the hundreds nominated for animated short film and documentary short film and feature animation, which is like just far too many. It's like, that's a huge ask. So yes, publicists, absolutely necessary. But to me, the crazy thing is like, and this is the same thing that happens in the feature documentary category as well. There's just so many movies out there. I, the whole idea that there could be one best film is so ridiculous. And, you know, I was a programmer this year for a couple of festivals and I recognized some of the ones on this list. They're good. They're good. There are others that I think are better. And it's just such a, it's like such a, you know, it's all... Who has the most money to spend, basically, you know? Well, who has the most money to spend and what film might fit within what we consider the Academy voice? Like the same way we think about festivals each having a voice, like the Academy of Motion Pictures Art and Science has a voice. Now, that being said, that's changed a lot in the last five years. Like the average age of the Academy voter has come down a lot in the last couple of years because they're actively recruiting young members. There's someone I went to college who with who's now in the Academy, like, He's a couple years older than me, but he's not super older than me. Like there are people that are joining the Academy at younger, younger ages now. And that voice is getting more diverse, hence Parasite winning. But like, you know, it's still the Academy. It's still a very mainstream Hollywood focused institution. And so the best short film that doesn't resonate with that audience isn't necessarily going to be the one that makes the short list. Can I ask you guys a question? All, all three of you? your opinions sure. go around about this 
in your experiences in the instance of maybe Charles, people you've known, or in your estimations, how much do you think being an Oscar-nominated short or even winning impacts a career? Tremendously. Trem- like, epically. What happened for the guy you knew? I mean, the guy I know who won has directed two or three feature films. The guy I know who got nominated, uh, my wonderful friend, Sam French, beautiful human being, like truly a great soul. You know, I mean, it it launched him. He had given up on filmmaking and then he made this short film. It was really good. It, it was solid. Uh, my company was very proud of having our role and helping him bring that vision to light. It got nominated and all of a sudden he was just from the nomination. I mean, I would say just being in the top five nomination opens up doors and meetings and connections and relationships that are the thing that most filmmakers are looking for. There is a whole swath of people in the industry that watch every Oscar-nominated short every single year who are, like, connected, who remember them. And I remember, like, four years later, I was in New York, and I met with some producer, and he was like, oh, yeah, you started Dirty Rubber. You guys did a short, right, that did an Oscar. And I was like, oh, yeah, Buscashi Boys. And he was like, oh, I remember it, and he could talk about it in detail. And this was, like, four years later on another coast, but, like, relatively big producer who like every year watches all the Oscar nominated shorts looking for talent and in a way doesn't really care who wins. I mean, I think who wins matters because you get in the telecast and whatever America sees you, but like for within the industry, the short list or the top five seem to matter a lot. Like I run into a lot of people that that might be the only short films they watch every year. And that is the place they are looking to see short films. And I mean, look, look at Luke Matheny, right? Luke Matheny won what in 2014, 2015 and turned that into, um, I never met him, but he's actually my buddy's roommate. I don't know if I should give that caveat, but, um, turned that into directing episodes of Marin. And then he just created a show for, I think Apple TV. Um, and like, you know, off of his NYU thesis winning best short film, 2014, 2015, somewhere like that. So like, you know, we all acknowledge that the film industry is full of random rolls of the dice. And I think the Oscar nominated shorts are unfortunately one of those places that is one of those random rolls of the dice. If your short film happened to win an award at a qualifying festival and happened to appeal to the Academy that year to make it to the top 10, which as Kath was saying, doesn't mean it was one of the 10 best short films made that year by any means. Like that's, you know, um, any more than the five, movies nominated for best picture are always the five best movies ever made. Like every year, except actually parasite parasite was definitely one of the top five movies made that year. I really like parasite, but like every year there's all sorts of movies where I'm like, this was better than that. This was better than that. Like why did that win? So it's just one of those rolls of the dice, but it is weirdly, I would say even more so than my friends who've like won awards at Sundance, like a buddy of mine won best short at Sundance in 2007, 2008. And I think Sam getting nominated for an Oscar was a bigger deal than winning Best Short at Sundance was for my other buddy in terms of like doors opened. What, Michelle or Kat, do you guys have any experiences or what thoughts? Yeah, that's funny, Charles, because I actually watched the Buskashi Boys in the theaters that year. And I remember really liking it. Oh, and crazy. Actually, and actually being really bummed that it didn't win. Um, and Aww. I, and I think back to that, I remember that group of short films well, cause I was kind of, I felt like the one that won wasn't just like, wasn't the best, but just had the most like broad appeal, I guess. 
Well, um, thank you for saying that because Bushkashi Boys was the best that year. <laughs> That's what I felt <laughs> when I watched it. Short films win Academy Awards. And then I think, well, that should totally launch a filmmaker into like this next level of their career. But I've never seen like those, those filmmakers don't become household names in the same way that like the directors who, who direct best picture become household names. You know what I mean? It doesn't change their career from an outsider's perspective, but you're so right that it does open a lot of doors in the industry for them, for sure. In the back of my head, I keep thinking about, was it last year where they were going to, they proposed the Oscars telecast proposed, which categories they weren't going to air anymore on air because they had to cut the runtime and one of the categories oh, yeah. was the short films and in the and I always think about that because I makes me I was like how much do they really like and honor short films if they're willing to just not telecast that category and catapult or try and get those names into you know every into viewers homes because that was one of the as, as, as i think that was one of the categories they were proposing that they cut from the telecast altogether it was i i did know sort of of a guy who had a nominated oscar short and nothing really came out of it and i always that was my only anecdotal experience which is part of why i asked but charles makes a very compelling case for why just being there means tons of eyeballs tons of doors open which i know from a lot of other anecdotal experiences like you don't even need an oscar short to be getting those doors those first doors open like people are always looking for new talent so i can only imagine the from the perspective of how many pe- how many meetings you start to take but the thing that to me again experience my experience it's all limited to that my knowledge about this i don't have like data on it <laughs> but i know that there's a lot of things that start opening doors and talent isn't always like there's so many factors about like what once the doors open what happens next and i think this is an interesting point for our for the, for our audience and for this podcast is just is this probably one of the biggest things that can happen with a short it must be in terms of opening the initial doors but like so many things as well it seems to me that my thesis would just be it's no guarantee that anything happens next because most doors lead to more doors. I am really glad that you brought that up. Doors only lead to more doors if you are ready. Like the 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 key determinant in my friends that have like gotten opportunities like this and had it turn into something is like, do you have two or three feature scripts that are ready to go that are as good as your short that you have a meeting and you're like, oh, I can send these over after the meeting and get them read and like, you know what I mean? Or do you have the idea for the feature that you're ready to start working on? And they're like, okay, great. When that's done, send it to us. And then two years go by and you don't send it to them. Like there's two halves of the equation. There's getting the opportunity. And what do you do with the opportunity when you get it? Tech news this week was an an interesting one. It is more conceptual than usually in tech news. Often in tech news, I'm like, here's this new physical thing that exists. And um, this week, we're going to talk about Frame.io's new C2C, which is not C and C. It's not a music factory. It's C and then the number two C, um, although it would be fun if it were C and C music factory. And (laughs) it is their new Capture to Cloud platform. Also, full disclosure, I always got to say this. I've written some for the Frame.io blog. Um, so, you know, that colors my perspective, I guess, although I think I'm still pretty critical when something drives me nuts. So Frame.io, if you don't know it, 
is a online work in progress review tool. So like you have a cut, you want notes on it, you put your cut on Frame.io, you send a link to people and they can do time code based notes. It's a great tool. Uh, it's super useful. You see it everywhere now. Um, Vimeo has sort of like ridden it a little bit. They do time code based notes now too. And I think there's Whipster and a few others, but Frame.io was the first and the best and they're still working hardest at integrations. So like, you know, now those notes can show up as markers in Final Cut Pro. So you don't even have to go to Frame.io. They show up as your markers in your timeline and you can work your way through them one at a time. And it's, it makes dealing with clients easier, which if you've ever dealt with clients, you know, that's a wonderful thing. So the new camera to cloud platform they've launched is all about making the step from shooting to editing faster. So by working with existing hardware, they actually showed off something like this at NAB two years ago, but it was like custom hardware. And now they're working with existing hardware. If you have like a Teradek cube on your camera, or if your sound recorder is using a sound devices 888, which are, these are two very common things. They're around there. You can buy them off the shelf. They're not weird. They will automatically onset every time you roll and cut, the cube will know you've rolled and cut and will automatically generate like a H.264 version of that file and upload it to Frame.io. You won't have to do anything. It'll have the same file name as your shot in camera. It'll have the same time code. It gets all those flags over SDI and then bam, over Wi-Fi, it just shows up on Frame.io. So if you're like shooting in Brooklyn and your editor is sitting in Los Angeles, your editor can be sitting there and the shots can just pop up on Frame.io as the camera rolls and cuts in Brooklyn. And because Frame.io has all these great editing in integrations, like let's say you're editing in Resolve. Well, Frame.io edits directly in Resolve where it shows up as another hard drive. So you're sitting there in Resolve editing and you look in your media pool and the shots just keep popping up. So somebody's recording and cutting in Brooklyn and directly in your editor, you're not even doing anything else. The shots just appear with the right shot name, ready to edit. So, you know, 10 minutes after a shot is done, you can edit it in your timeline and see if it worked and send a rough cut back. Uh, it is slick as hell. They're not the first people to do it. I think Maxion did it a couple years ago. And again, they showed it off two years ago. The big innovation here is, you know, that Frame.io is pretty universal and like a little pricey, but not that pricey. But it's also all off the shelf hardware. It's just a Teradek Cube 655. It's a Sound Device 888. They say they're going to work with a whole bunch more hardware. They're going to work on certification for a bunch of hardware platforms and make it, you know, very open to play with anybody. And the film industry wants to decrease the number of human to human interactions to slow the spread of disease, right? So like that person who used to have to take the drives from set and drive them to post is a vector. If you have an outbreak on set, that could lead to an outbreak in post. This breaks that. Now you don't have to have the person doing that because it's automatically over the cloud going from set to post. So that's one less vector of possible infection. I'm really excited that this is coming to sort of the Frame.io price point. Frame.io is a little too pricey for like the one mule team paying out of pocket, but it's like a really nice price point for even small production companies. You know, it's like a 10th the price that WireDrive used to charge us. So it's sort of in a nice price point for like small. And then once you get to the big players, it's like well affordable and uh, it should make life less painful for there. So yeah. That's the tech news. That was my question was, if you had a big production or a small production, does this prove advantageous? It probably just proves advantageous, but in terms of the pricing, do we know anything about the pricing of this yet? It's just it included just in, in your Frame.io. It's oh, just it like is. if you own oh. Frame.io. Awesome. Yeah. If you, if you have a Frame.io license, this is just part of your Frame.io license. Okay. There's no That's extra charge for it. Okay. Except, remember... 
your Frame.io charges you by storage. The right. more you store on Frame.io, the more it costs. A lot of productions don't use Frame.io for their dailies. They only use Frame.io for their fi- for their cuts. So, you know, that's how I usually use it. I don't put all yeah. of my dailies up there because that's a lot of storage. So, you know, you'll end up paying a little more because you're paying for more storage because your dailies are going to go to the cloud. But you'll end up saving money on physical infrastructure, hard drive, shuttling around town, paying for messengers. So it's sort of a, a cost benefit that I think works out. The hardware itself is pretty affordable. I mean, the sound device is 888. It's not their most ex- expensive recorder. I don't remember how much a cube costs, but I think it's like three grand or four grand. Um, you know, it'll be really cool when this technology is integrated into like, you know, there's like a combo bolt cube or whatever, which I'm sure Teradek will do soon. Um, Cause you'll also need, you know, the fewer things you have to put on the camera, the better. So if Teradek can make like a combo unit that's both a bolt and a cube, I think people would be really psyched. Cool. All right. And then Deep Cuts, our favorite romantic movies. This one's hard. Mine's easy. Oh, bring <laughs> it. My, <laughs> my favorite romantic movie will always be Working Girl. Nice. With Melanie Whoa. Griffith, Harrison Ford, and Sigourney Weaver. Love that movie. I don't know how much of a deep cut it is, but I do feel like most of my friends haven't seen this movie. Mike Nichols, who is such a genius, The Graduate is also one of my favorite movies. But I just like Working Working Girl is just so delightful in every way. I love that it's like a class story about Melanie Griffith, who comes from New Jersey and has only had a community college education. Oh, I'm so sorry. Staten Island. JK, she rides the ferry into work. That's right. I'm a native Californian. I'm not as familiar. I'm not as familiar with New York, but yes, Staten Island. The opening, the opening sequence where she's riding the ferry. It's like one of my favorite things. I just forgot. (laughs) But yeah. And she works for Sigourney Weaver, who like went to Wellesley and just had way more privilege than her and is 30 and is like at the top of this big company. And, you know, over the course of the movie, Melanie proves that actually she has what it takes to thrive. And Harrison Ford ends up falling in love with her. And I think it's all really beautiful. And there's a young Alec Baldwin in this movie, which is amazing. He has a really hairy chest. Um, It's kind of wild. And Olympia (laughs) Dukakis is in it. I think there's a young David Duchovny in there. Can I also say on that note, when you're talking about the male actors, that I say this as a as a straight cisgendered uh, identified male, that Harrison Ford during that era of cinema was like the pinnacle of of a lot of things. <laughs> like I don't think it gets much better than Harrison Ford around that time. And so any movie starring him from the mid early to mid eighties, and I guess Working Girls late eighties, but like I'm on board. Oh yeah, he's yeah. super dreamy he's in this movie. All right, that's okay, that's great. So I'm I'm going to drop a deep cut that I dropped like a year ago as a deep cut on another subject. But I love this. It might be my favorite movie. I love this movie so much. I'm going to drop it again, um, which is there is no better romance movie than Moonstruck. Uh, if you've not seen it, just go watch it just right now. Like, love like that movie. even if you're at work in a Zoom, yeah, like Moonstruck is perfect. It is a portrait of a time and place in New York City where like middle class people could live here. It is a story <laughs> of like passion and connection and intensity. It is a self-consciously old fashioned story. It is like a perfect screenplay. And yeah, Nick Cage, Cher, 
it's oh yeah vincent cardinia which is like such a great actor name you just go watch Moon john mahoney olympia dukakis it is phenomenal uh so many so yeah nicholas cage in them yeah exactly it's a movie it's a movie where Nicolas Cage can be Nicolas Cage. He's his most Nicolas Cage, and it works. You know that's what's so great about that movie. Well, because the script is opera. Like there is a there is a scene which is on YouTube, and I've probably contributed at least 150 of its hits to it, where he is baking bread, and it's 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 opera. It's opera in cinematic form. It is magnificent. Um, after you've watched the movie, you can add another 10 to 20 hits to that YouTube clip. Um, I highly recommend it. I also watch that clip regularly, for sure. <laughs> I do. Fun fact about that movie is that they also almost didn't cast Nicolas Cage, and Cher put her foot down and said, you have to cast him or else it will not star in this movie. I also heard Olympia Dukakis didn't want to do the movie, but her daughter was in college at Vassar, and it was expensive, and she took it for the paycheck, um, <laughs> which like she is so good in it. Didn't she win the Oscar for that movie? I think she might have won the Oscar for it. I feel like Valentine's Day and romance movies are hard. And my first reaction was I should just share the Ryan Reynolds match ad that had the new Taylor, the re-recorded Taylor Swift love story, which involves um, Satan and uh, someone named 2020 matching and the like the worst year ever. Do you guys know the ad that I'm talking about? No, it sounds Maybe I'll just share it. This is a Match.com ad that came out in December. And it has um, Taylor Swift's newly recorded love story. You know, she's re-recording all of her songs to kind of own them. And they got an early release of this song just to put in this ad. And it is awesome. It's, it involves Match.com and a match between Satan and the year 2020. And it's great. That was I, the first I, thing I that love came to mind. a non-feature, just like a piece of content. Like it's a piece of content. Right? It's hilarious. I it sums up how everyone feels I think about potentially much of 2020 but also it it just is it's a great little ad I that was the first thing that came to mind the second thing that came to mind was trying to find films that focused on kind of self-love versus romantic love real women have curves which is from 2002 so not 1988 at all (laughs) but and the reason that I remember watching this film and it you know celebrates uh, self-love and, and body type. And the reason I give a caveat is because this film is one of America Ferreira's very early films. And then she herself kind of went on her own kind of body and weight loss journey. And so the film independently kind of celebrates curves. And then she went and like changed her body type. So it feels a little bit like you have to watch it independently of like outside stories if you will or at least that's how I felt about it when I having loved this film and then like learning about her own kind of journey I was like oh I guess that makes sense except for now the film feels a little bit like it has to be kind of independent of everything else but it's a good one it is explores kind of teenage sexuality and sizes and stereotypes and things and I remember it being particularly meaningful so those are very different things to suggest. <laughs> the Match 2020, I'll post a link to it, the Match.com 2020 ad, and then Real Women Have Curves. There are so many good choices because, let's be honest, like movies almost always have people falling in love. So you, you could arguably pick a lot of movies for this, and there's a lot of great ones. And I have a tendency to go way back and pick like, you know, 
like my instinct was to be like city lights because I love that movie. I think it's perfect. And it's, you know, the, the very beginning, but I want to pick something recent to buck my own trends. And I want to pick something that I think is kind of unique, even after hundred years of cinema in covering love stories, which is eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, because I loved it. I saw it when it came out and I loved the way that it covers the idea of the lifespan, the history of people, memories. It uses a high concept element in a genre, the romantic rom-com genre to use like this idea of a technology that can eliminate memories and, and change your relationships. That's the kind of stuff I wish more. It's, it's the kind of movie I wish there was more of. I wish there was more room in movies and television for that kind of playfulness and metaphor. I wish there were ways that people could explore that and change the genres. But I really love how bittersweet it is. It's about, I, I think that it's just a great exploration of like who we are in relationships and how it builds up our identity, even when it hurts. And I like, I like the painful stuff in storytelling often more than I like the happy endings so that's why i fully am i fully stand behind your choice i feel like that movie is the movie that made me want to work in the film industry and the movie that made a lot of my friends want to work in the film industry as well i taught that movie for like six years in my visual design class and never got tired of it for six years i watched it twice a year with my visual design students and never once was i like i, I can't watch this again it just holds up and holds up and holds up I would say it's like one of the most, I, I, I don't know of any other movie that's that impressive in terms of its originality and its style, what they accomplished, like bo both the writer and director of geniuses. Yeah. Yeah. They pulled up, the, they executed on something that was unique and complicated and strange and visually like it, it just does. You know, it's funny when you said it's one of the reasons you and a lot of people, you know, got into it. I think that there's this weird, like, there are sometimes these movies that I feel like slip past the goalie, so to speak. And then what happens is they inspire a whole bunch of people to be like, that's what I want to do. Those are the kinds of movies I want to see people make. But it's so hard to make those kinds of movies. Like, like you see them pop through and they inspire tons of people to go out and try to do that type of stuff. And then you realize like, man, I don't know how they got that one through. <laughs> At least that's how I, I guess totally. maybe Jim Carrey. All right, everybody. That's been this week on the no film school podcast. Uh, I'm on the internet at Charles Hain on like Instagram and Twitter and all of those places. Uh, I'm Kath Tolentino. I'm a filmmaker and um, I'm on Instagram at go for Kath. I also directed a short film called Parachute, which you can watch on Short of the Week. This is Michelle Delator. You can find me on Instagram at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Recently, I've been doing things like filming cross-country skiing off a snowmobile and some other fun things that happen in Idaho. Um, <laughs> it's really fun to be back here. Um, thank you to all of you, George, Kath, and Charles, for letting me return. Uh, and it is good to, and we look forward to, hearing from all of you as well. If you have a deep cut that you want to share with us, please do so. Yeah, thanks guys for being on. Hope to have both of you back a lot more in the future. Uh, and I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find all the things we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube. We are doing more stuff on all these places. And uh, I don't know, there's a lot of good stuff happening on our podcast. We still do a lot of interviews. They come up all the time. 
We have one with the director of the Mauritanian, Kevin McDonald, that's up. So that's really interesting if you see that movie or you want to know more about it. But um, yeah, that's it. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Like, rate, and subscribe. Later. Later.